CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thanks for uh, being with us. Wow, a rough, rough weekend of weather for people in many parts of Georgia. Uh, Nobody got hit harder than folks down in Troop County. We're going to talk just a little bit about that uh, as we get the show started today. But there are storms moving through central Georgia again today. When you look at a radar, uh, what you see is a band of serious rainstorms Uh, that basically is as wide as the distance from Atlanta and a little bit north of Atlanta through Macon, kind of sweeping across that section of the state. So I hope everybody is doing well out there. I know Governor Kemp has announced that he um, and uh, his wife, Marty Kemp, are going to be going down to Milledgeville and West Point later today. They're going to hold a news conference at, I think, 5 o'clock this afternoon to discuss the the damage he has declared a uh, state emergency uh, for those sections of the state. So as I said, we'll talk just a little bit about that. And then, you know, there's in some ways, given that we're down to two legislative days in the 2023 session, maybe it's appropriate that we had stormy weather on the weekend before because things continue to be somewhat stormy down at the Capitol as they head toward day 40 on Wednesday. So Let's get right to introducing the panel and uh, begin our conversation. Jim Galloway is with me on Monday, and it's a real treat to see you today, Mr. Galloway, former political columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, now working on a book that uh, I keep hearing little bits and pieces about, but I'm really excited for you, Jim. Well, um, it's, you know, it's uh, working without a deadline, I've decided, is, is really hard. No, I'm, yeah. I'm 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 used I'm used I'm used to 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 three and four hour deadlines and and now this this is psychologically this is getting complicated. <laughs> I'm sure it is. Um, we're joined by Raul Bali, who is the politics reporter for WABE, and also the co-host of what's your podcast called again, Raul? You have to remind everybody. Gold Dome Scramble, uh, which has already dropped uh, our latest episode. We're joined by Maya Prabhu from the AJC, kind of previewing these last couple of days of the legislature. And Jim Galloway, you are always welcome to come back down to the Capitol and help me with my deadlines. (laughs) Uh, Thanks for being here on a busy week, Raul. King Williams is uh, back with us, documentary filmmaker. King, King, I think it's fair to say that the documentary that many people think of when they think of you is The Atlanta Way, your documentary on gentrification uh, in Atlanta, but you are a prolific filmmaker. And I did not know until I was looking at your biography that you also have had a a podcast, an interview show. Tell us a little about that. And I understand you told us right before the show you're about to start it up again. Yeah, it's nowhere as good as this one, but um, it's the King Williams podcast where I talk to people in Atlanta who are interesting and have interesting things that they contribute to our metro area. And it will be out on April 5th. Uh, True. And and, uh, do you already know who that first person is going to be or do you want to keep that a secret? I keep it a secret, but I know who it is. 
Okay. <laughs> well, I'm really glad you're back with us, King. Um, and I saved uh, for last today Chuck Williams, a reporter for WRBL-TV in Columbus, but a longtime print reporter down in Columbus, um, one of the best-known reporters uh, in his region of the state. And, Chuck, the reason I saved you for last is because when the storms, tor- the tornadoes, hit down in Troop County, you r- r- rushed out, the reporter you are, to survey what was happening. Yeah, when it hit yesterday morning, as soon as things slowed down a little bit, I had got on 185 and headed up to uh, West Point. That's where we were told the bulk of it was. And um, it was West Point Road, which is about two miles east of downtown West Point. It's probably the hardest hit area. A number of structures, dozens of structures, churches, homes, businesses, were hit. There were five people injured, best we can tell from the Cook County Sheriff's Office. Uh, none of them life-threatening, or appears to be none of them life-threatening, and no fatalities. So that's a that's pretty fortunate. But, you know, it was funny because when I go into things like that, I start trying to get as much information as I can before I walk in. And yesterday I was uh, texting and calling um, our elected officials because I figured they would have some information. One of the people that I reached out to uh, via phone call was uh, Congressman Ferguson. He's from West Point, family lives there, he lives there. And um, as we're going up, as I'm going up the interstate, um, I get a text back from Drew and I'm like, okay, and he gave me the impacted areas as he knew them and sort of what he knew on the ground. And then buried in the middle of that text was, oh, and there are two tigers on the loose. And I almost wrecked. It's like, what? I mean, I, it didn't. I couldn't comprehend it. Then I realized we were near the the wild animal park in Pine Mountain, and there were two count. There were two tigers that were unaccounted for. They found them, but I'm sitting there going, "We're walking into a tornado with tigers." I knew it was going to be a tough week, but I did not know it was going to start <laughs> like that, Bill. Uh, Chuck. Uh, uh, by the way, the I, I thought. I couldn't help but think you were walking into the life of Pi for those people who are familiar with either the novel or the or the movie. But um, look, look on the serious side, there was significant damage. I mean, some of the video and photographs of the hard hit areas are it's horrendous. Yeah, and I'm not downplaying that at all, Bill. Please don't take it. It's yeah. that there was incredible, incredible damage in multiple areas in both Harris and Troop counties. Uh, that the area off West Point Road was heavily hit. There was an area off Shoemaker Road hit, and then there was another area where the uh, Wild Animal Park is down near Pine Mountain, and that's about 15, 18 miles apart as the crow flies. So, you know, and when I walked through it, I got in it very early, and I was there as family members were collecting other family members and getting them out of there. And I talked to a guy who survived it, and he said about 4.30, heavy hail came in. 5.30, all of a sudden, his wife wakes him up, and she wakes him up. The roof is going off of his house. And he just said, by the grace of God, he and his family got out of there. Two churches, Bethel Baptist Church and uh, Church on the Rock in that general area were heavily damaged, if not destroyed. So you can't diminish what happened. It was it was bad. And that's the second time Fruit County has been hit since January. And I mean, you got to wonder. It used to be South Alabama that got hit a lot. You got to wonder if it's starting to shift 100 miles north now, and this is sort of the line where it comes. Um, Raul, I know you wanted to make a quick comment. 
I do want to mention, as you mentioned, Milledgeville was was also hit. And, and by the way, a little insight. I'm already up here at the state capitol, and that's the conversation between lawmakers. Hey, was there damage in your area? What happened in your area? And one of those people is State Senator Rick Williams, who I talked to this morning. Uh, the mm-hmm. hospital did sustain some damage down there. Uh, it, hospital had to go on ICU, uh, go had to go on diversion. Um, there was a lot of power outages. Checking this morning, it's now just in the dozens of outages. But you know, the folks in Milledgeville, they're they're also dealing um, with a chunk of chunk of damage there too. So uh, just thinking about everybody who was who was affected, and um, you know, I think the other thing that we 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 mentioned on the radio is. You know, watch out for the scamsters and the gougers because they, they always seem to come out with these two. Yeah, well, thank you for, we are thinking about all of you down in that part of the state who are dealing with this. Um, and uh, uh, obviously later this afternoon, we'll all be reporting on uh, Governor Kemp's visit down there, what he has to say to people uh, in that area. Um, all right, let's talk about the legislature. Jim Galloway, uh, let's talk about, uh, what happened uh, late last week or over the, I'm not sure exactly the timing of this, but Burt Jones, the lieutenant governor, serving his first term, his first session as president of the Senate, <clears throat> excuse me, um, as most people who have been paying attention uh, to news from the Capitol know, uh, Burt Jones was absolutely determined to uh, pass a bill that would end what are known as certificates of need, a procedure uh, in rural parts of the state, uh, uh, areas with fewer than 50,000 people in population. The certificate of need was a requirement that the state imposed uh, that you would have to uh, have to be able to build a new hospital or, for that matter, major medical equipment as well, things like MRI machines and the like. And uh, Jones wanted to eliminate it. Uh, because uh, he believed that his community down in Jackson uh, needed a new hospital. Of course, there's also the other part of that story is we know that Burt Jones' father owns a big chunk of land. Part of the controversy was that it appeared that maybe if they were going to get the certificate of need eliminated, it would be built on land that his dad would sell. Uh, So the whole thing got very convoluted and complicated. Jones was ready to gum up the whole legislative session over this. He finally relented over the weekend. Right. And there and there, uh, there still may be repercussions in, in the budget and, and possibly in the fate of that that uh, that uh, mental health bill that's that's still hanging out there. This is it's, it's really been a very fascinating uh uh, episode because what you did you had you had uh, uh, the governor Brian Kemp and the former governor Sonny Perdue Chancellor of the University System on one side backing one of the larger uh, uh, healthcare systems in Georgia maybe the largest Wellstar uh, based based in Cobb County versus uh, a, a lieutenant governor. Who uh, who was who's trying to buck that system for 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 counties over uh, with with populations less than fifty thousand? It 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 tells you it tells you how important healthcare has become to economic development, uh, especially in South Georgia, where you basically have a healthcare desert, and and the key question is who controls that healthcare, 
and, and I think that's what really this this fight is all about. It's it's uh, I don't want to get uh, too terribly historical with you, but it, it kind of reminds me of, of about 150 years ago when the big fight was between Georgia's political elite that had uh, allied with railroads, which controlled uh, mm. the economy in Georgia, and uh, the, those who did not. So it's it's a it's a, it's a very interesting populist versus political elite story that's building. I think, you know, King, uh, the ebbs and flows of how organizations are treated by leaders and the media, for that matter, are fascinating to me. And in this story, they're particularly interesting. One of the reasons that Governor Kemp uh, and Sonny Perdue were opposed to uh, allowing the certificate of need bill to go through is they were trying to protect Wellstar, which has a hospital already in that area of Jackson. And and Wellstar felt that a new hospital would be competitive with what they have. This also relates to Wellstar's taking over the hospital out in Augusta. But, but what's fascinating about that, King, is suddenly Wellstar, uh, in this story, emerges as sort of a good guy after they had been excoriated by many political leaders in Atlanta and beyond for shutting down their their hospital out of nowhere right in Atlanta, which was serving a lot of the needier community of the of the city. It, that's one way to put it. And another way to put it is like this seems very much in the vein of crony capitalism and in the way that if Wellstar can have their cake and eat it, too, then I think they're having their cake and eating it, too. Um, I think it is a need for rural hospitals. I think Wellstar has understood their relationship much better than a lot of other companies in Georgia and knowing when to pull out of Atlanta and say, well, you'll get a lot of public backlash, but there's not a lot of revenue to be grown in particularly the downtown section of Atlanta versus expanding into rural sections of the state. It's just a much better business deal. And why not look as the hero of saving rural uh, hospitals if you can do that in the process? So, um, Raul, here's another aspect of this story that I, I want to talk about the mental health bill, which has been held hostage, it appears, and we'll get to that in a moment. Um, but what it, what it, talk to me about the politics of this. Uh, I think many of us who talk to people at the Capitol have heard from associates of the governor that his office basically sort of felt Wait, does Burt Jones understand he's the lieutenant governor? He's not the governor. In other words, Burt Jones seemed to be testing his powers in this new position as president of the Senate. This is an important dynamic that I try to explain to people. We talk about Republicans versus Democrats. We talk about rural versus suburban versus urban. But I think it's always important to talk about that we also have the dynamic of the, the, the Senate and the House. That is also a dynamic that is in this building. And, and you come into the idea, it's not just we have a new lieutenant governor who's the new presiding officer of the Senate. We also, across the hallway, I'm sitting in the Senate right now, across the hallway in the House, there's a new speaker. So you've got those dynamics, and, and those are just as important um, for, for people to understand. And and those have come into play because, you know, for example, a perfect example is the state budget. The governor lays out a state budget. The House does some things to it. The Senate does some things to it. And now everyone's kind of got to have to work out their differences because you have those dynamics and those priorities, which are as interesting as political, partisan and geographical. 
Chuck, weigh in on this um, before we talk about the mental health bill. You know, I think what Raul said is spot on. I think there is a lot of filling out going on right now between the House and the Senate. And I've talked to several lawmakers today or last night and early this morning. And, you know, one of the ones I talked to is Carolyn Hubley. She's a longtime Democratic uh, House member. And I said, what's going to happen the next couple of days with health care, with any number of issues? She goes, why are you asking me? She said, there are only a few people who know, and I'm not one of the ones who knows. And I think that's part of this power game, power game, control game, whatever you want to call it, this game that's being played. And these are people who simply by where they are now, understand the levers of power and understand how to pull those levers. And what what Raul will be watching and all of the other reporters the next couple of days, next three days, is sort of how they handle these powers. And, you know, one of the things I heard was we may not get a budget pass. One lawmaker said there's a chance the budget doesn't get passed and they have to come back in special session. I mean, that would be a power play on somebody's part. Well, I, I suspect that that threat, which we've seen before in these sessions, is one that the governor's office is holding out uh, because they want what they want out of this budget. The last thing in the world that lawmakers want is to have to come back in August. So it's a great uh, card to uh, put out there on the table to get people back in line, I suspect. But but we'll watch and see, Chuck. In the last days of the session, as you well know, nobody knows what's going to happen. Um, so, Jim, let's talk about this mental health bill, which has maybe now has a path forward now that Burt Jones has said, OK, I'm not going to take this. I'm not going to go any further on ending certificates of need this session. Um, and, and what's been held up is the second phase of a mental health bill that really last session became David Ralston's legacy. Um, this was the most important legislation for him last year. No one knew, obviously, that he would pass away uh, months after the session ended. But so this bill became a genuine legacy, the first effort to really reform what had has been one of the worst mental health systems in the state. They came back this year. The House had a second uh, shot at, at adding to this. It was going to streamline the way agencies share information about uh, patients. It's going to create a way for state agencies uh, to um, uh, to make sure that uh, law enforcement and mental health providers uh, could deal with the people who come before them frequently. How do they handle those people who find themselves in difficult times with the law and all sorts of other aspects of this thing? And, and the Senate was holding off, holding off. They're, they seem to still not like the fact that the bill would um, in some ways address housing access for people with criminal backgrounds due to mental illness-related arrests. And they don't like the Senate side, doesn't like the health-related social supports, such as unemployment training for young people who receive Medicaid. Right, right, and you know, I'm, I'm kind of reminded what, what what Speaker Ralston said uh, uh, way back in the day when this first wave uh, passed is is that 
that he was he was operating under the uh, uh, under the advice and direction of of his local sheriffs in his house district uh, because jails county jails were becoming the the de facto uh, uh, health care mental health care institution across Georgia. Uh, and that's what these provisions uh, want to do. It, it, it seems to me that you know, if you're de- denying housing to 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 felons, uh, uh, people who are judged felons because of their me- mental illness, you're you're kind of playing into that. Uh, you're, you're you're leaving you're leaving the jails as 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 the only options. It'll be interesting to see how they resolve that if they resolve that. And and I think a lot of it, as I said before, is going to depend on on. Uh, uh, how Lieutenant Governor Bird Jones uh, recovers from uh, uh, from 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 this admitted defeat he had on the hospital issue. You know, King, um, uh, we know the Senate is traditionally the much more conservative body than the House. That's certainly been borne out in this year's session. Um, and one of the things that struck me about their objections to the bill, and we'll see what might happen to it in the days leading up to signing die. But they seem disinterested in offering support, for instance, uh, how to make housing more accessible to people who've had arrests based on their, with their, because of mental health uh, problems. Um, the notion of um, you know, expanding uh, uh, health-related social supports for young people who receive Medicaid, giving them employment training and the like. Um, those seem like the sorts of things that have the potential to truly make the mental health system here a better thing. Yeah, I think in a lot of ways that uh, you can in, probably interpret the opposition to this as effectively expanding government and also potentially expanding future expansions on that. What I mean by that is by passing a lot of good things in this bill, like you said, giving housing to people who really have needs or people who have had mental health issues in the past or mental health episodes, it sets up a long-term strategy that I think a lot of people are going to eventually get behind. But I think if I'm the state right now and state lawmakers, I don't want to necessarily exceed um, the expansion of mental health facilities, right? And so I think that's going to be the bigger thing going forward is how do we expand mental health facilities without necessarily giving money to mental health organizations or the construction of these places? Yeah, Raul and then Chuck. I think it's, it's important to mention one other key thing in this bill. And that is last year's medi- uh, medical uh, mental health reform package, substance abuse package, was about increasing health coverage. Another important part of this year's bill is just because you have coverage doesn't mean there are providers out there. And that that's an important mm-hmm. part of this bill is creating more providers and also looking at Georgia's current amount of inpatient critical care bills, crisis care. Uh, and making sure those, you know, how are the current beds being used and do they need more beds? These are also important things. Because, again, if you and I have coverage in our health plans, that doesn't help if you there's not actually access to that care. That's another important part of this bill we should mention. Thank you for adding you know, that, Chuck. You know, Bill, it's interesting, too. When you talk to these lawmakers, the people that are going to decide this individually, they see the need. They know the need. And that doesn't matter which party they're in. The ones I've talked to can see it. They can articulate the reasons for it. The problem is when they go into the huddle and get in, then when they get into their team huddle, then that changes. And it's it's fascinating. I mean, and 
I'm going to steer just a tad off course, Bill. I covered a fascinating trial last week where there was a not guilty by reason of insanity defense used in a murder case here in Muskogee County. And the guy was convicted eventually. He's, he had seen a Wisconsin video, black guy said he wanted to go out and kill a white guy and went in and stabbed a guy in an auto zone store. Um, uh, a white guy. And he used not guilty by reason of insanity. He was convicted, but you could see the mental health threads and the lack of mental health care in our community in that trial and in that testimony. They had dueling psychiatrists and all that. I mean, all you have to do is go look around you to see the mental health needs in our community. Well, that's one of the big measures hanging in the balance between now and sometime, we imagine, late Wednesday night, early Thursday morning, when they finally uh, uh, bang the gavel to uh, end uh, the session. We're going to come back and talk about one more measure for today. There's a number of others that we'll get to uh, tomorrow and Wednesday. We'll talk for about one more legislative measure today. And we're going to talk a bit about the news uh, that uh, has been breaking around the planned Atlanta Police Training Center, and a little bit more about Brian Kemp and a fascinating interview he gave to the Wall Street Journal last week. We'll talk about all that and more after these messages. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. I didn't even realize it when I introduced the panel. We have a Double Williams show today. We have King Williams, documentary uh, filmmaker and podcast host and producer. And we have Chuck Williams, uh, reporter for WRBL-TV in Columbus. Joining them, Raul Bali, politics reporter for WABE, and Jim Galloway, uh, former political columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Uh, very quickly, Jim, I know you're eager to start getting out there and placing legal bets on your favorite sports teams. And you mentioned right before the break, you wanted to know where that measure stands. It appears to have been resurrected and could uh, uh, be passed. Yes. Well, yeah, it looks like it's, it's, uh, it, it has been placed in, in, in inside of a, a, uh, a go-kart bill, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> No, they've separated that, Jim. No, oh, they have. They have. That. Oh, no, yeah, yeah. No, it's going to have to come. Uh, Chuck, do you know it's going to have to come in another form? Yeah, it is. It is a soapbox derby bill uh, that it got attached to. They've moved that uh, out and kind of fixed that up. Raul can probably speak to the mechanics of that better than I can. But what's interesting is I talked to House Rules Committee Chairman Richard Smith. He is one of the guys who knows what's going to be going on in the next few days, or at least has a general idea. He's a Columbus state representative. And Richard told me, uh, Chairman Smith told me yesterday, he would be surprised if then he changed it to shock if the sports gambling bill got out. And, you know, the way I looked at it, I sat down and looked at what my picks would have been for the Final Four and what it would have done on Saturday and Sunday. 
the Georgia General Assembly is saving me money every day. They keep me from being able to place these legal bets. <laughs> Raul, uh, that sort that that sports gambling bill, which has gone down, which there were four iterations of it, none of them got past signy die. And then poor state representative Lisa Hagan, her first bill, she wanted something very simple. She wanted to have, I think, Lions declared the soapbox derby capital of Georgia, and they hijacked it and stuck the sports gambling measure in there. But fortunately for Representative Hagan, her bill is now free and clear of the sports gambling, right? Yeah, so, so to explain to our audience, if, if a bill, there's there's a day called crossover day. If your bill doesn't cross by crossover day from one chamber to the other, it's technically dead. The way you get around that is you copy paste your bill into a bill that has already passed. And, and, and literally watching that hearing, the hearing was about making the Southeast Soapbox Derby in Lyons, Georgia, which has been there since 1992, the official Soapbox Derby of Georgia. She presents her bill, and then literally the chairman of the committee, State Senator Brandon Beach, says, okay, we're swapping out your bill, and we're dropping, you know, 40 pages of gambling uh, into your bill. And she was incensed. I mean, just – she just said, take my bill out, please. Just take my bill out. And so her bill's been brought back to life elsewhere. It is available, and it's possible that it will get a vote on the Senate floor. I, I find it interesting in the same way – Buckhead Cityhood got a vote, whether it had the votes or not. I think there's a possibility it at least gets a vote. This is only online sports betting. This is not casinos, not horse racing. There's no constitutional amendment for voters to vote on. It, it, is, strictly, um, it is strictly online sports betting. And I think it at least gets a vote in the Senate, whether it's today or Wednesday. Um, King, as long as uh, uh, Raul mentioned uh, Buckhead Cityhood, which was obviously one of the most controversial measures, back again, didn't go anywhere. But you've written about it. Um, and um, I, I wonder if you think this is still going to have life in the next session and the session beyond that. I I agree with Raul. I think it's going to probably get a vote this year, probably, and it's probably going to die this year. But I do think it's going to keep recurring. Just when you look at the overall gaming revenues, both by online betting and also general sports betting and the gambling sector as a whole, we're talking $100 billion or so per year. That number could be up to the highest $200, $250 billion by 2030. So I do think the gambling industry is going to keep pushing because Georgia offers such a robust opportunity for different types of gambling that some state lawmaker is going to take that call from some lobbyists and they're going to get that bill on the floor every single year for the next seven to 10 years. Yeah. Um, and what about Buckhead Cityhood? Uh, that's going to be like the the gift that keeps on giving. It's never going to officially die. It's always going to be, I think, uh -huh. many ways, like a lure to kind of keep Atlanta and the mayor's uh, uh, ear in line with whatever needs to go on next. <laughs> okay. Um, in, in a few minutes, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, uh, Mayor Dickens in an interview he gave to the AJC. We'll get to that in just a second. But one one more legislative issue that we'll really talk about more tomorrow, because now at noon today, a coalition of organizations um, and an interesting uh, pairing of organizations is going to hold a news conference opposing the bill that's now in the Senate to establish a definition for anti-Semitism. 
And the reason that the proponents of that bill, Representative Esther Panitch, want that definition is so that anti-Semitic actions can be included under the statute uh, that establishes what is a hate crime in the state of Georgia. But the Council on American-Islamic Relations and a very liberal Jewish organization are going to hold a news conference today in which I suspect, I think their main point, Raul, maybe you know more about this, is going to be that the definition that they're using, which comes from an international Holocaust uh, remembrance organization, they believe includes the possibility that criticism of Israel could be considered a hate crime. Is that uh, basically what the opponents are saying? This is one of the key points that that's been coming up is 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 criticism specifically is criticism of Israel anti-Semitic and will it lead to issues around free speech? That is just one of the issues that has been coming up around this legislation. I I should mention another issue. You mentioned um, that international organization's definition. Um, What we've seen is other lawmakers who have been uncomfortable with the legislating saying, hey, Go look at their definition instead of the state of Georgia defining anti-Semitism, putting its own definition in words versus the idea of referring to another organization saying, go look at that organization's definition for the definition of anti-Semitism. That's just two of the issues that have come up around this. Um, You know, as I mentioned, there's always the possibility of, of copy pasting a bill into another. And that's happened in this case as well. That legislation is now also up for a possible vote in the Senate either today or Wednesday. So, um, Chuck, uh, you know, we at the same time that there are, there is opposition to this measure, uh, the Anti-Defamation League just put out another new report saying that anti-Semitic, um, various forms of anti-Semitic activity in Georgia have increased exponentially just in the last year or so. So this is going to be an interesting battle back and forth. It is, Bill, and it has increased. We've seen those hate-filled flyers dropped here in neighborhoods in Columbus as the same ones that were dropped in Atlanta have been dropped in other places. This isn't going away. It seems to be ramping up, and the the hate-filled behavior, something needs to happen. We, we should point out that the House passed this bill in a bipartisan manner. I mean, overwhelmingly, there were less than a dozen votes against it. It's the Senate that has slowed it down for a variety of reasons, including those which Raul just talked about. So um, we'll talk about it in more detail after we've learned what's going to happen at this news conference at noon today. Um, King Williams, let me move to the Atlanta Police Training Center controversy. We have several developments on that front. I'm going to start with you on this. Uh, Late last week, uh, Mayor Dickens sat for an interview with uh, Greg Bluestein to talk about a variety of issues. But of course, the big issue was the police training center. The first question Greg asked was, uh, give us your elevator pitch for why it is needed. Let's listen to what the mayor said and then talk about it. 
I mean, right now, the city of Atlanta does not have a place where we can uh, train our police officers and firefighters and to be able to go out here and help the community. So we need this to protect the citizens and make them safe. But we also need it uh, so that we can do 21st century policing, community-based policing. Uh, firefighters and police officers work together a lot on things to bring about safety. So we need this. And right now, if we don't have it, we will continue to rent and be a nuisance to this college that we're borrowing space from. From, but also that we will um, and, and, and have an inability to recruit talent to come to our police force and firefighters so they can do what they need to do. Uh, King, at another point in the interview, Mayor Dickens admitted that he did not anticipate the kind of enormous and heated opposition that would spring up, not just from people here in Georgia who protested for a variety of reasons, some environmental, others having to do with the way they believe police uh, behave in their communities. Um, but he never expected the outside of the state uh, folks coming in either. I think that that's a broader part about Atlanta and its brand uh, management. I think that overall, the last couple of weeks, I will say Dickens and those people who are supporting the, the cop city or the police training center have really done a much better media campaign to both explain their position and also to have a lot more support on why they believe the training center is needed. I do think there's some valid criticisms about both the deal itself and then also like understanding that just a center is not necessarily policing and just study after study shows if you want to have better policing, pay the police more versus spending the hundred and so millions of dollars that we're going to spend on this facility. I do think though what Dickens is correct in that he didn't estimate the level of public backlash is because I don't think that he understood fully how much the leftist national leftist community has descended upon Atlanta because our local activists and leftist community has mostly been mostly disassembled. So that's created a problem that I, I don't think that he nor the city can really solve now. And now Cop City, every day it doesn't get built, it produces more and more opportunities for more and more national protests and inquiry, which isn't great if you're Dickens and it isn't great if you're an APD. Yeah, Jim, uh, pick up on that, because I think w what King just said is important. The opposition to this shows no signs of letting up at all. No, no. And that's why uh, that's why you've also seen uh, uh, DeKalb County CEO Michael Thurman uh, step out there a little bit more than he than he has before. And 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 doing things like like having show and tell. Uh, at, at at a press conference where he's showing the these these traps that have been laid at a a, a local park, which is uh, I think the one that I saw was basically of some pallet pallet wood uh, uh, spiked with nails and turned upside down so the pointy side goes up, which of course is uh, rather hazardous. So it, it's it's you've now got the two most important leaders in Metro Atlanta kind of engaged in selling. And I think you might see the narratives start to turn a little bit. Um, uh, Raul, let's pick up on what Jim just mentioned over the weekend. Uh, Mike, Mike, Michael Thurman uh, announced that they were shutting internment Creek park, which is an adjacent facility to where the, or a park adjacent to where the uh, training facility would be. And as, as Jim pointed out, uh, police discovered there were some devices there that could harm uh, people who were wandering through, came to the park for uh, to walk, to hike, whatever. Um, so, you know, and, and now, just before we came on the air, Raul, uh, we got a news release from DeKalb County saying that the um, public safety department in DeKalb is already moving into the park to try to clear out those devices so they can reopen it. 
Yeah, and, and and part of the media blitz that the mayor has been doing also included a stop at, at our station where he did a 40-minute interview, and, and most of it was on this issue. The question is now, where else could this go? And that, that was kind of my big takeaway from his conversation with us is, where else are you going to take this where there's not going to be opposition, whether it's you know, whether it's from people who are against the building of that specific type of facility or the people who have issues, environmental issues, because you've got to have a certain amount of space and buffer to build a facility like this. In the end, the question is, where else can the city of Atlanta build it, whether it's with their property or getting property from elsewhere? And I think that's an, that's an important point in all this. Chuck, before we get to a break, does this issue resonate beyond Metro Atlanta? Or do you think people in Columbus pay attention to it? Do you think they're paying attention to it in Albany and Savannah? I would suggest that we there are elements that are involved in this that are in your communities. Those who believe police are overly aggressive in uh, communities of color, uh, that believe that um, there should be better ways to deal with, uh, say, domestic issues than sending police. In other words, there are general issues that probably resonate whether or not this police training center does is another question. The answer to your question, Bill, is yes. But I would tell you that in Columbus, it's an issue of capitalism. Brassfield and Gorey is the largest contractor in the city of Columbus doing all sorts of work, both public and private, throughout our community. Brassfield and Gorey is the contractor that has been awarded the contract in the police training facility, Cop City, whatever you want to call it, in Atlanta. We had a protest here with about 13 mostly Columbus State University College kids, many of them Metro Atlanta kids who are down here, that were, po- were protesting after the death of the activists there. And they were protesting at a brass building downtown near a brass building gory site, um, construction site. So, yes, at least in Columbus, it is being watched because it does impact this community, particularly through Brassfield and Gore. Uh, all right, let's do that. Uh, King, did you want to make a last comment before we get to break? Did I see your hand? Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, just a quick thing. I do That's think fine. that to Raul's point, I, for what Dickens was also saying, I think there's some people who are going to go back through a lot of the paperwork and start looking at why didn't Atlanta or APD necessarily join Fulton County with their new proposed facility back in 2021 and 2020. Um, I also think that Long term, if I if I'm Atlanta and I want to get the DNC in 2024, you kind of have to get this cop city project completed before then, because right now it's going to be an issue that you don't want to have before the national convention next year. That's exactly right. Thank you uh, for uh, finishing up the conversation with that, King Williams. Uh, Let's take our final break. Come back with the Brian Kemp interview in The Wall Street Journal. Jim Galloway, last week, a reporter for the Wall Street Journal, James Taranto, uh, went down to Sea Island and conducted a one-hour interview with Governor Governor Brian Kemp. Uh, The the journal published it under the headline, Brian Kemp, Georgia's Affable Culture Warrior. And there are just some fascinating uh, observations that Kemp makes in this uh, interview. Why don't we start with the fact that uh, he declared that despite the fact there have been folks in the national media saying maybe this guy ought to be running for president, 
He pretty much made it clear he's not going to do it. But he did say this. I have a great relationship with Mike Pence, a really good relationship with Ron DeSantis. Chris Christie came and campaigned for us multiple times, along with other governors. And then he went on and names other potential uh, uh, candidates for, including Nikki Haley's already declared. Uh, it doesn't say he's going to support any of them, but at the end of it, he says, "Yeah, I haven't heard from Trump, <laughs> Jim." Yeah, now, 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 as, now, I am somebody who who pays attention to language, right there. Now, two years ago, three years ago, that line would have been, "I haven't heard from the former president," or "I haven't heard from President mm-hmm. Trump." This was just, "Yeah, I haven't heard from Trump," and it came on it it it, it came on it came on the <coughs> eve of 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 uh, the former president's uh, really first big campaign appearance in Waco, Texas, where. Uh, 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 he 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 was putting out some very volatile uh, uh, language. Uh, we can we can talk about that, but you know Brian Kemp is basically setting himself as up as 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 something very very opposite opposite to Trump. Uh, he's uh, yeah in that interview. I mean, he defends his 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 actions on on uh, the COVID response. He compares himself a little bit with DeSantis. Uh, but I, I just, I, I think it's, I think that that little bit of language there really tells you that that Brian Kemp is over Trump and he's trying to rally the people who also are. Chuck did not agree more with the last words that came out of Jim's mouth. But one thing about that article, Bill, that struck out to me was one sentence, one simple little sentence near the end. Georgia voters seem to like Mr. Kemp's record. I would say, I would take that a step further. I would say Georgia voters seem to like Mr. Kemp. I take record out of it. I think if you look at what Governor Kemp has done, the way he has pushed his policies, but he hasn't done them in a DeSantis way. He hasn't done them in a Trump way. He certainly hasn't done them in a Trump way. He has done what he wanted to do in a way that was less offensive. And I would argue in a, most communities in the state of Georgia, there are people in the power structure that are very much like Governor Kemp. You can work with them on certain issues, but they're going to do what they're going to do on core issues to them. And I think a lot of Georgians, even ones who have do not support him and voted against him, genuinely seem to like Brian Kemp. I, that okay. So King, um, what's interesting is in this article, uh, uh, Toronto uh, quotes uh, David Brooks from the New York Times, who said that uh, Kemp is part of the quote conservative managerial wing of the Republican Party. Uh, so he is a bit more low key. He's not Ron DeSantis in that respect. But he did, you know, he's he did pass the heartbeat abortion bill, the law. He did expand gun rights in the state of Georgia. So it's interesting to think of him doing those very controversial, polarizing things and Chuck suggesting the people still really like him. I do agree with uh, Chuck on that. I think people, I will say Kemp supporters really do like him, right? I do think in many ways, Brian Kemp is just a remix of the compassionate conservatism that we've seen in years past. But I do think when you have a supermajority in the state house and the state senate, when you have a corporate community that also pretty much backs you on most things outside of things like the heartbeat bill, 
you can get a lot of things done without having to necessarily shift a lot of tables. And I think that's what he's doing. If I'm the biggest person I, I probably would be concerned about is if, is if I'm John Ossoff in 2026 and I know that, hey, maybe Brian Kemp wants to stay along a little bit longer in this political thing, then I think that this kind of compassionate conservatism remix that we see from uh, Governor Kemp could be a real, real strategy in three years from now. Uh, Raul and then Jim. It's still the question of what does all of this look like when, when you talk about four years from now? What does this all look like in the changing face of Georgia with the changing demographics, the changing politics? That's That to me is the bigger picture here of the state of Georgia is changing. Now, yes, it still leans Republican. Absolutely leans Republican. You saw that um, with what happened in November. But I want to see where where things go on issues down the road as well. Jim? Yeah, uh, one thing I'd, I'd, I'd point out just to, to, to what we've been talking about is, is uh, uh, Governor Kemp's style is, uh, is take, for instance, the, the transgender bill that the House passed and, and that he signed. Uh, I, I believe it, it, was, it, was, it was given final passage uh, just late last week. He signed it right away. He, you know, he's, he's got those 40 work days to, 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 to puzzle over it. He did not, he signed it. He put out a statement. Uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, I mean, uh, you have a lot of critics who, who are, 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 I think rightly calling that, that, that bill, it was unnecessary. It was, it was rather bullying of a very, very, very small minority. And the governor could have made hay out of that. He has decided not to. I think that's pretty important. I would think that one of the reasons you sign it as fast as possible is to avoid a building of resistance to it that could become yep. a major news story. So you just do it and get it out of the way. <laughs> one other quick thing, because we're running out of time. I love the exchange in which Kemp talks about Trump's reaction to his deciding to open the state again. Trump says you shouldn't do it, basically. Hair salons aren't essential. Bowling alleys, two parlors aren't essential. Kemp says, with all due respect, those are our people. They're the people that elected us. They're the ones who are fighting. We're fight, trying to fight for. And then Kemp trashes him. And Kemp says, after running over me with the bus on Monday, he backed over me again on Tuesday. No wonder he doesn't have the same respectful uh, way of talking about Donald Trump that he uh, might have at some other point. So it's a, if you happen to have a Wall Street Journal uh, subscription, it's really worth reading. Uh, if not, borrow a friend's login because it's it's really a lot of fun. We're out of time uh, for today's Political Rewind. Uh, I wish we weren't. There's a lot more to talk about, uh, but we'll be back tomorrow to continue our conversation about what's happening at the legislature as we move towards signing die. King Williams, great to have you back. Raul Bali, have fun down at the Capitol today. Chuck Williams, Jim Galloway, thank you both too for uh, being with us. As I said, back tomorrow with another brand new show. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care, stay healthy, and be good to each other. Thanks for being with us today. Natalie Mendenhall, thanks for your work directing today's uh, show. It's good to see you back in the saddle. See you all tomorrow. <laughs>